In 2023, we're asking our readers and listeners to join Pellicle in helping us to become profitable. Every month, we pay writers, illustrators and photographers a fair rate for their work. And this is all thanks to our sponsor, Hotburns and Black, and the hundreds of people who subscribe via Patreon. We want you to help us hit 500 subscribers so that we can create a sustainable resource for Pellicle and so that we can continue publishing more articles and more podcasts like this one. We can only keep this magazine and podcast going through the support of our readers. So if this sounds like something you can help with, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash mag to sign up today. We're determined to make one of the best drinks magazines out there, and we can only do this with your help. Thanks for listening. And now let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pellicle Podcast. Happy New Year. I'm your host, Matthew Curtis, and hopefully this year is going to be a busy year for this podcast. I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to trying to make as many episodes as I can. I didn't quite manage it last year, but this year I've got a good feeling that it's going to be a good year for this podcast. And I'm starting, as I mean to go on, by attempting to publish no less than four episodes this January. I'm still sat on a lot of content I recorded in 2022 and I'm trying to catch up with myself because it's only once I've published all of that that I can crack on with recording some new stuff. This intention to record and produce more episodes is starting with four episodes I recorded last summer at FineFest where we hosted the panel discussions for the second time. And today we're kicking that off with a fantastic interview with the managing director of Fine Ales, Jamie Delap. Now, apologies to regular listeners, I'm going to skip a lot of the usual preamble so that we can get straight into this episode. So I'm not going to do the usual check-in and just mull a few topics because I really want to get these episodes done and the more I talk, the less likely it is that it's going to happen. But what I will say, you may have noticed at the start of the episode and you may have seen on our site that we're starting a big funding drive to hit 500 Patreon subscribers. As I record this, we've got 305, so it doesn't seem that unfeasible a target to hit. What we're aiming to do this year is to become profitable. We've always tried to be break-even, and so the mags remain sustainable, but actually we're finding now that we don't have the resources to invest in our writers, our illustrators, our photographers, and the team. That's myself, Lily Waite, Katie Mather, and my co-founder, Johnny Hamilton, who make Pellicle happen. A lot of work goes into making Pellicle behind the scenes and I want to make sure there's a platform to invest in that work and so that we can keep going. So if you can afford to subscribe from as little as a quid a month, but more if you can afford it, then please head to patreon.com forward slash Pellicle mag and chuck us a few quid. Every little bit makes a difference. And I believe that if you do read Pellicle regularly or listen to this podcast regularly and you can afford a small subscription, you should because it's worth it. So here's to a great magazine and podcast invested in great beer and wine and cider. And I appreciate you listening to me go on about it. I know it's something that comes up a lot. 
But I genuinely am thankful for all of you who do read and listen and to all of the kind feedback we've had at the end of last year about Pellicle. It's a real joy to produce it for you. Anyway, let's get on with this week's episode where we are off to Glen Fine and to Finefest. I went to my first Finefest in 2018 as a regular punter and I was expecting a beer festival. I was aware of the beautiful location in Glen Fine, right by the banks of Loch Fine, not far from Loch Lomond and the Trossachs. But what I found was something more or greater than I expected. It's a beer festival in that there is a lot of beer from some great producers there and there's a lot of really fantastic cider as well. But it's not a beer festival. It's just a regular music and coming together festival where there just happens to be great beer. It's so much more than the sum of its parts. It's such an escapist festival as well because you pretty much don't have a mobile signal when you're out in the Glen. So you're kind of forced to be focused on what's in front of you and that's great friends, great beer, great music and this wonderful vista of rolling mountains and the lock stretching out before you. I was quite taken aback with it. I think it's the best event run by a brewery in the UK. It's super special. And I'm really excited to say that Pellicle will be back there in 2023 to host panel discussions for the third time. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be bringing you these panel discussions on the podcast. And it starts with an interview with Fine Ale's managing director, Jamie Dillap, one of the most interesting people in beer. And he's also someone who really has his finger on the pulse of the current issues and pressures facing the beer industry. Fine Ales was founded in 2001 by Jamie's parents, Tuggy and Johnny. And when his dad, Johnny, passed away, he took over as MD just over a decade ago now. One of the first things he did when he took over was to start Finefest. Where the brewery is, is where he grew up. It's his family home and farm. And in the summer, his friends would come and camp and they would drink and there would be a bit of music. And he wanted this to be open to more people. So Finefest started in 2010 with just a few hundred people. They even brewed a special beer for it with some citra hops from North America, which was only the second time they had been used by a brewery in the UK. The first was Oakham Citra. That beer would go on to be named Jarl and is now the beer that the brewery is hinged upon. It's the majority of their production and the beer they are best known for. But they do brew a great many wonderful beers, not just for cask, but modern keg beers and spontaneously fermented wild beers in their origin series as well. Finefest has grown to become much bigger than its humble beginnings. It now welcomes well over 3,000 people into the Glen, people who camp, people who bring their camper vans, people who stay in local bed and breakfasts. And they all come for the same reason, for this camaraderie, this sense of togetherness in the Glen. And yes, there's great beer. Yes, there's great music. But it's the way they all kind of meld together that makes it such a special event. And Pellicle runs probably the smallest part of that, the Meet the Brewer conversations. And there's no one I would have rather chatted to than Jamie himself. A conversation I tried to record in 2019 and 
Well, let's just say there was a bit of technical difficulty. So it was really important for me to pick up on the conversation that I never got to put out back then and also reflect on how things had changed since we last spoke in 2019. Because we had just come out of lockdown, the pandemic was still all around us, but we were just starting to get back to normality. And there was a new crisis on the horizon, the cost of living and in terms of breweries, the cost of powering the brewery, the cost of ingredients increasing dramatically, the cost of beer going up. And Jamie, who is not just the MD of Fine Ales, but also one of the directors for Seabert, the Society of Independent Brewers in Scotland, is heavily engaged with these challenges and how to meet them as an independent brewer. And that's largely what we discuss at the start of this conversation, how the pandemic affected the brewery, how they designed the brewery to create that perfect pint of yarl, and how the cost of living crisis and new things such as the brand new alcohol laws that will become active in the UK in 2023 and the dreaded deposit return scheme, something you're going to be hearing about a lot that is causing small brewers an immense amount of headaches, especially in Scotland where it's supposed to start. And Jamie has been at the forefront of trying to make this process not damaging to small brewers. We also get to chat a bit about sustainability and how the brewery is investing in things like solar panels and heat reclamation to ensure they're bringing the energy bill down. And we also talk about how great it is to have Finefest back in the Glen at last. It really is a fantastic interview that I hope you enjoy. I will say there is a little bit of an audio quality dip due to one of the microphones we were using having a low battery. And I've tried to edit that out as much as possible, but there are a few blips, but I hope that doesn't disrupt your listening experience too much. This is Jamie Delap of Fine Ales, the first of four talks from Finefest in 2022. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us at the Top Barn. My name is Matt Curtis. I'm the co-founder and editor-in-chief of a little online drinks magazine that mostly focuses on beer called Pellicle. Um, and I'm a freelance writer, author of a book called Modern British Beer. And uh, I'm very grateful to, to Jamie and Ian from Fine Ales for inviting Pellicle back into the Glen to host the Meet the Brewer Talks. And I wanted to start how we started in 2019 with an interview with Jamie, the owner and MD of Fine Ales, because firstly, we recorded that interview and uh, it didn't record properly. We had some technical issues and it was a really good conversation because this will be broadcast on our podcast once we've recorded it all. So I was really gutted we didn't get to put that out there. But the other reason is that the last three years since 2019 have been unexpectedly tumultuous and we've all been through a pretty traumatic and challenging time, which is why it feels extra special. I feel we deserve this weather and this glorious beer and this, this festival uh, to help us uh, just carry on really and, and remind ourselves that uh, there's plenty still to enjoy and beer, especially a good pint of Jarl, makes all that better. So, Jamie, welcome. How are you today? How are you feeling? Um, yeah, well, I, I got four or five hours sleep. I've had a shower. I'm, I'm on the Barocca. So, um, yeah, life, life could be worse. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I, I get a comfortable bed to sleep in, so I'm, I'm easy. Well, I'm, I'm glamping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, doing pretty Sorry. okay myself. <laughs> feeling pretty fresh. Um, so, let's wind the clock back three years ago. And um, how... 
how early did you think, fuck, <laughs> we've got to do something? <laughs> like, like, I was at the Cloudwater Friends and Family Festival in February, and some brewers were dropping out because they had flu-like symptoms. Um, I went to Sieber's Beer X on uh, March the 11th, stayed in a hotel full of Atletico Madrid fans, and two days later, I woke up with a fever. <laughs> so, um, when, how early on in that cycle, uh, because before there was lockdown, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, said, you shouldn't go to the pub, about a week before we actually locked down. So, when did you go, right, something's bad, we need to do something? You know, I think, I think we could probably see the storm clouds building during, during that February of that year. But, um, you know, I don't think anybody could have honestly said that they knew how things were going to tail out. And even, you know, I think the idea of the lockdown didn't really feature on anyone's radar until surprisingly late in the day. So you, you, you could feel the storm coming, but we really had no idea how it was going to play out. So I don't think that I could crystallise one moment. It was just the storm clouds building, building, building. Um, you know, I just, you know, for me, the day that always sticks in the head is, um, I suppose up here, it's Nicola Sturgeon. Um, I suppose, which was... I can't forget anyway, but between Nicola and Boris, when, when they told us that the pubs were shut, everyone was to go home, and they hadn't announced furlough, um, that was just the sickening moment. I remember, you know, I remember spending like a, a, a sort of very difficult late night working out policies, how are we going to look after all of our team, and what are we going to be, what's, the, you know, what's our first ask of our team, and if it really drags on, what's our next ask of our team, um, in terms of basically having to sort of send people home for a, a short sort of what we thought was going to be like, you know, maybe you could have to go home and um, you know just work four days a week, and if it gets really tough, maybe three days a week. But we'll keep paying you 80%, 66%, or whatever. And how long could we last that for? And like running spreadsheets, thinking, well, okay, if it's, if it's three weeks, that'll be no problem at all. Um, so you know, but if it starts becoming four, five, six, eight, ten weeks, it was going to be like, ooh, this is going to be really dangerous times. Um, but then, yeah, then, then furlough got announced, and the, the game changed immediately. So there was that there was that initial lifting of restrictions as well in that in that brief summer. Uh, each had to help out. And, <laughs> each had to uh, save Pret, wasn't it? <laughs> and, yes. And um, and uh, what was the other thing? Oh, you had to have a, a substantial meal. But when uh, were, you, were you here? Were you thinking, right? We've got to get because you rely heavily on on draft beer, really, and yeah. cask, cask in particular. I feel. Yeah. Certainly, what I drink. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I mean, we we are probably amongst sort of the the, the modern wave of breweries, probably more more cask oriented, although we do everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, we are we're very much much more to the point. I mean, we're very much um, hospitality led. You know, we were probably seventy seventy percent of what we produced was going into pubs, um, pubs and bars across the country. Um, so yeah, so so um, and a lot of the rest was probably hitting restaurants as well. So. Um, uh, yeah, so so it really felt like that was like all of our routes to market were going to be shut. Um, so yeah, so on on that basis, kind of sent everybody home. It was just me, Malkar, head brewer, and Elaine, who's my sort of right hand person in the office and um, does everything, all the all the other stuff. Um, and so just the three of us um, stayed behind. And I just remember that after after that first weekend, we came came back in um, and sort of downloaded the internet shop. And it's like we've now between three of us got four and a half tons of beer to pack. <laughs> so it was, um, you know, I mean, it was brilliant. You know, so so many people stepped up and supported local businesses and switched to buying online. And you know, we were doing scavenger runs around all the local supermarkets, getting all their old cardboard out the back to feed through our shredder to help pack everything. It was. Um, it was mad. Yeah, that, yeah and um, 
you uh, luckily have a canning line, don't you? No, we don't. You don't have a canning no, line. A canning so, uh, ha- so how are you canning? Were you, were you having a mobile we're, canning company drive up? And no, we've, 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 we've worked for a long time with a, with a, a contract packager who does a really nice job for us. You know, my, my view, and I'll say I've probably got this wrong over the years, um, but you know, I was always of the view, unless you could spend a million quid on a canning line, don't get into canning, um, which was probably true 10 years ago, but isn't, isn't true now. But because of that, we, we, got, we built up a really good relationship with the team that did a great job for us. So um, we work with them. But the other thing that really seemed to work well for you in lockdown were the mini casks. Mini and they, casks. They haven't gone anywhere. They, they, they've remained popular. Yeah. But, you know, how, how did they do for you? No, they, they were huge. And we, we launched this sort of um, subscription club as well so people could just get two, two, two mini casks delivered um, to their home every month. And um, that, that worked brilliantly. So, yes, I mean, we, again, we were lucky. We've always done mini casks, you know, for... 10, 12 years, so we, we knew how to fill them, we had a supplier, um, and yeah, you know, but the orders just like, you know, we used to burn through, um, I can't remember, like, uh, we were burning through two orders, for, uh, I, can't, I can't remember, two, two, two basically Arctic loads of, um, of mini casks a year was our average, and suddenly we were burning through an Arctic load of mini casks within about a month, so it was just like, we need more, <laughs> when does the next order come in? We need some more. <laughs> So and what did great. the minicast company do? They put their prices up. <laughs> like actually, actually, at that time, they didn't. They were okay. very good. This year, that's another story. <laughs> yes, we'll get, we'll get into that yeah. and, and the challenges that, that now face us. Yeah. But uh, going back just over a year to, to April the 17th when pubs were able to open uh, outside and then it was May, uh, five weeks later, they deemed that the five weeks was the, the arbitrary measurement to open pubs. How did that feel? Was there a, a, a rush? Were people like, wow, we need casks now, or was it more of a, an ease into uh, pubs reopening? No, it, um, for us, really, from when restrictions were opened in May last year, um, things went like a rocket. And I know lots of different breweries had different experiences. I think it very much depended sort of where you sat on the bar and how people perceived your brand and stuff. But I think there was a certain sort of, once people reopened, they wanted things on the bar that they knew were going to sell. Um, so I think they maybe opened with fewer choices, and we, we were lucky, you know. Yarl's got this great reputation, so lots of pubs will, if they're only going to put one, one cask ale on, they were like, we've got to have fine ale on their opening. I remember there was one guy um, up in um, Inverness, which is you know about a five-hour drive from here, and he's like, he actually offered to drive down to us in order to pick up his first first four, four casks, because he's like, there's no way I can open my bar without having Yarl on it, I'll get lynched. <laughs> so, because obviously the wholesaler who normally supplies him didn't, wasn't stocked up and in the supply chain. So, yeah. We, we, we were really lucky. Um, people have been lovely. How key is having a beer like Yarl in your in your arsenal, so to speak, because so many breweries that have emerged in the past decade have relied on scarcity, uh, limited edition uh, releases, changing the hops up in a similar recipe. But you've got this beer that we were supposed to be in 2020 celebrating its 10-year anniversary. Yeah. So it's kind of like its belated anniversary <laughs> yeah. this uh, this weekend. But how key is it to have a beer like that in your portfolio, so to speak? You know, I think it's, it's, there's a little bit of sort of philosophy of what you're trying to do here. Um, you know, it, it is really nice as brewers, we, we like to experiment. And actually, you know, pre-pandemic, I think, think in 2019, uh, 2019 um, we did 60 different new beers during the course of the year. Um, and that's actually quite, quite a big treadmill, just constantly getting new recipes, branding, pricing, getting everything sorted out and out through to the market. Um, 
And so, yeah, so whereas the nice thing about having a good solid core range is you can really dial it in and you can, you know, there are so many different, very small decisions which go into how your beer is brewed and what makes your beer your beer and how it works. So very much, you know, our, our new brewery, we know, with, um, you know, I think we've spent about three million quid on it or maybe a bit more these days. Um, but it's been designed as to how do we produce the best possible pint of Yarl. So there are so many engineering decisions which have gone into how do we optimise for that beer. And, you know, and by doing that, we can keep on investing in our process control, constantly thinking about how do we just tweak it, make it that little bit better, dial it in that little bit further, in a way that if you're constantly chopping and changing, you can't do that because, you know, you've got, you've got nothing to refer against. It's like, you know, I think everybody, when you're trying to do your development programs, you know, you stand, stand on one foot and you move the other foot there, and then you stand on that foot and you move the other foot there, but you're still dynamic, you're still moving, you're still evolving, but where you, if you've got a beer like Yarl that you're trying to stand in one place and really just say, okay, it's, it's, it should always be, at the end of this year, I hope the pint of Yarl you'll drink will be better than the pint of Yarl that you drank at the beginning of the year, because we should be getting it a little bit better all the time. Uh, but... Um, but it's about refinement, and I, 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 like, I like that from a brewing perspective. And I think reputationally, you know, I, I don't want to be known as just the Yarl Brewery. Um, we have a lot of other strings to our um, strings to our bow, but um, it's it's fantastic. And you know, it's I mean, ultimately, you know, we, there are so many consumers, there are so many beer drinkers out there. We've got to get capture their attention. We've got to tell our story, and having a brand that people recognise that really helps to get people's attention, so they really engage with us as a brewery and understand what we're about. Well, I've been doing a lot of market research, testing uh, the quality of Yarl this weekend so far, so I can uh, taste uh, the deliciousness that all that effort has brought us. So thank you. Uh, what are the beers that you in in the range that you go? Oh, I love this. I wish I wish it would have that impact uh, of Yarl. And why do you think Yarl in particular has been that beer for you? What is it about it? You know, that's that's, that's a little bit hard to know, isn't it? Because you know, there's um, you know, I don't know how many. Um, hundreds or thousands or um, even a million people a year are probably drink, drinking Yarl. Um, and everyone's probably got their own story as to why why it is that works for them. And maybe they first came across it with friends in the right setting. You know, beer is, to me, it's a social product. It's, it's something that's designed to be on the table, surrounded by friends, nice place, good food, good music, if you're here. <laughs> um, but that's kind of what beer is. So for so, so many people, it's like if you encounter a beer in the first place, and then the next time you go back to it, it's got all those memories coming with it. So it'll be lots of different stories, but I think, you know, for me, Jarl expressed perfectly what we were trying to achieve, which is to look at sort of the modern world of what was going on um, very much. I'm, I'm very much influenced by the American beer scene, and so I spent a lot of time out in the States, particularly when I first got involved with the brewery here. And um, so I spent a lot of time there looking at what was going on there, and it's like, well, okay, how do we take those ideas, but how do we also really respect British brewing traditions and do the best British-style beer we can, but bringing on board those American ideas and that's very much what Yarl is it's it's and it's not just about the hops but it's about the whole regime the way we think about it the way we put that beer together and then but then the the brewing process our brew our brewery um, you know it is absolutely it's a classic British brewery it's a very high spec um, you find very other 
like we have a, like a full-size hop back, so we can use whole flower hops um, or whole cone hops, probably better better terminology. Um, and we think that that expresses more flavour than you will get with a T90. So most craft brewers um, will work with pelletized hops. It's a German technology. It's more efficient in the process but you also lose something um, in doing that. So we designed the brewery to how do we combine this, the best of British and the best of the, um, the craft beer movement. So then Jarl sort of um, perfectly expressed that at the time we launched it, and I think that just worked, and I think it's, it's from that and why that's carried through. Well, that's, you've described why Jarl is the book that is the first, very deliberately, the first beer of my book, Modern British Beer. And I'll tell you a story about that now, because when I pitched the book to Camera, the campaign for Real Ale, uh, I had to write two of the example beers up, and I picked um, Burning Sky Saison Provision, and I picked uh, Jarl, because uh, I thought from either end of the country they uh, encaptured modern British brewing. Uh, and I got feedback from Camera before they uh, offered me a contract contract they said that's that's it's got citra hops in it that's not a very scottish beer and i picked up the phone uh, to the to them and said look you if, unless you want to take my word for it you have to drive up to glenfine sit there drink a pint of citra maybe have an oyster from lockfine round the corner and and enjoy that moment and tell me that's not the most scottish modern beer experience you can have and they went all right and so, and it became at the start of the book. So I'd like to say thank you for having <laughs> such a wonderful beer. But I think this is a good way to, talk, to go into talking about the costs of producing that beer, because like you said, it, it uses American citra hops, uh, the most cultivated hop in the world now, which only really started being used commercially, uh, well, 12 years ago when Yarl came out. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but that uses, you know, you were talking earlier about how it, uh, we're talking about cask beer and how it is a, it's a high quality artisanal product uh, that costs a lot to make. You've invested in high quality equipment, very well trained staff, but you also have to power that brewery and then get the ingredients. What's the most challenging thing about maintaining, I guess, our expectations as drinkers who would like to enjoy Jarl and, and drink it at a certain price while managing the cost of ingredients. What's the most yeah. challenging part of that? Yeah. I don't know. The, and this year, I have to say, I mean, I'll, after all the foregoing, you know, and we have, we have, we have and, you know, we, we've, we're lucky, we're in a fortunate place. We've, we've think things have gone, we've not had any big, huge disasters all the way through this. Thank God, touch wood. And, um, <laughs> and my team have been, you know, socially distanced comes, comes naturally if you're in Upper Glen in Argyle. We are quite distant from everyone up here. Um, so, um, but actually this year with these, these cost increases, it's just been it's insane. I mean, it's um, as mentioned to Matt earlier. You know, our, our energy bill in um, in April 2019 was just over seven thousand pounds, and in April this year it was just under twenty-one thousand um, pounds. So, if you want to know the person that got their energy contracts most wrong in the entire country, it was me. <laughs> um, we we actually pressed renew on our energy contract on the day that Putin invaded um, Ukraine. <laughs> so that was exactly the wrong time to have to renew your energy contract. Um, so yeah, no, it is. It's um, it's it's mad. Um, the thing about uh, the, the interesting thing about getting citra over from the states, it's 
it's honestly, it's not actually so much a cost issue um, because actually the growing conditions in Yakima are fan where, where most citra is grown um, are fantastic. And because they've got these fantastic growing conditions and the scale they operate at is just enormous. Um, I've been, I go out, we go out there, sort of either myself or Malk, my head brewer, every year to visit all the farms and choose what we think is the best batch of citra that we can find. And then that's our batch for the whole year. So we buy we go, we go and rub 50, 60 different samples of citra from around um, 10, 15, 20 different farms in, um, in Yakima in Washington State, and then we'll find the one batch that we like, and we'll keep that, and that's, we'll buy our whole year's requirement just from that one, one batch of yarl. Um, but you, so you go and you see what they're doing there, and they're, they're, they're producing hops extremely efficiently. But it's also one of these proprietary brands, which is um, owned by this um, huge company, Yakima Chief. And so they really artificially keep the price of that high, which is, you know, okay, fair dues. They, they invested a lot of money in terms of producing it, but boy, God, they, they milk it. So, so the hops, but the hops actually, because again, you know, I meant to have in the last month sat down and tried to work out how much um, yarl you're all going to be drinking in four years' time in order to buy hops for four years' time. So you we're contracting so far forward on hops that actually hops is one thing that's actually been pretty stable this year. Um, malt prices have just gone you know, an extra £100 a tonne on malt, which is huge. That's like 25%. Yeah, I was just going to say, you, do you source your uh, your malt all exclusively from the UK, from Scotland, yes. or from uh, North exclusively, of England as well? Exclusively from the UK. Um, the thing, the thing about malt is you want the best malt for brewing that you can get, and that depends a lot on where the where that is. Will depend on the weather. Um, so you know, so, so if if you have a policy, uh, which we've debated for for a while, was just having a policy of only buying Scottish barley. That's great in a good year, but you then, if, if the weather's just wrong in the parts of Scotland where the thing's growing, the nitrogen levels are too high, and you, you've, you've locked, you've tied your hands together, and you've now got a policy which means your beer's not as good as it could be. So um, we, work, we work with our maltsters, and um, we, we're, we're looking for the best quality UK malt. The UK makes some of the best malts in the whole world, and they sell it all over the world. So you know, you, there's absolutely, you would be insane to buy malt, in my opinion. Um, Others may have other opinions often, <laughs> but um, in, my, in my view, it's better to, um, you know, you can, you can get the, some of the best malts in the world um, from the UK. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. It's interesting, actually. We're a major uh, barley producer in the UK, so despite the shortages caused by the war in Ukraine uh, of barley and wheat, uh, we grow enough for ourselves. However, that doesn't stop the market... <laughs> Yeah. Price is changing because of that, and that's what's uh, yeah. driving much of that price, isn't and, it? Well, well, I mean, so so far Ukraine's had no impact on the price. Again, we'll we'll, we'll contract at one price for the whole year. So, um, but but come next year, I, th I think it's going to be scary how much. Um, I mean, if, if you look at the wheat futures market and that kind of everything else, is you take the wheat futures and you add on to that um, all the other elements that make up the cost of good malting barley. Um, and that price has just gone through the roof. So I, I hate to think what the prices will be. The, the, the malt will be available, but what price they're going to get for it because we're, we're competing with the rest of the world. Um, you know, there's going to be a horrible shortage. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're heading for very difficult times. And that's not even the uh, the... the 
the tip of the iceberg, really, because my, my next question is, because next year the entire alcohol legislation for the UK is changing, and you also have a deposit return scheme to get your head around. I could see the veins appearing. <laughs> I, uh, I, I spend about time, I'm sort of um, leading on the um, deposit return scheme for the um, sort of small brewers in Scotland and across the UK, and I spend about two days a week um, at the moment with the Scottish government, with the re regulatory agencies, with the people that are setting it up, just trying to knock some sense into that scheme. Um, it's just one of those ones where they just haven't listened to us. We've been telling them for sort of since they started thing. You know, and we're all in favour. You know, things which are going to get us to net zero. We've got to do it. We, we can't complain about it. We've all got to make changes. We've got to do our bit. There's no question. If this was going to really meaningfully get us towards net zero, everyone would be behind it. But in order to do it successfully government officials need to listen to us and actually understand what the real problems are and enable us to come together and find solutions. Instead of which, they've just been like, no, it's all going to be fine, it's all going to be good. And now it's going live in a year's time and just everyone, I was on a... Um, gave evidence to a committee of, um, from the Scottish Parliament last week. Um, and, you know, we had me there as small brewers saying, look, these are the issues we've got. We had someone from um, a mid-sized family brewer same set of issues. Then the guy from Tenants comes on the call. I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. I wonder what he's going to say. What, what's, what's his evidence? Absolutely the same thing. It's like, you guys have got to stop. You've got to listen. And you've actually got to work out how we do this properly. So I, I hope we'll manage to get the scheme working properly. I'll be really surprised if it goes live next year the way that they say, say it's going to. But there's an awful lot of people working on it. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, and also... Um, the tax will change next year. Wine, uh, beer, cider will all essentially be taxed as, as, a, as alcohol rather than having their own tax laws. But one thing that's been discussed recently, because there's going to be a draft uh, reduction, which will hopefully be on 20-litre containers and not 50 or 40 litres as they initially proposed. But um, some uh, people in beer, John Keeling, uh, retired brewing director at Fuller's, is a great example, have been begun to campaign for a cask discount based on it being a heritage product and culturally important to the United Kingdom, which I think we can agree that it is hugely culturally important. But how, do, how would you feel about uh, a discount on, on cask uh, for it just because of that heritage? So I can very much for me, you know, cask beer is, is something that is unique to the British brewing heritage. It's something that, you know, if I talk to brewers from other, all, everywhere else in the world, you know, cask beer is the thing that makes British beer sort of distinct and separate on the market. So I'm a huge, passionate believer in cask beer. Um, but at the same time, you know, what, what um, always gets me is like, you know, you know, inevitably, you know, everyone, everyone through the supply chain, we're trying to do the best thing we can for consumers. We're trying to make sure we're getting our beer out there. But you know, but I go and speak, speak to pubs and um, running really nice bars, particularly up here. Lots of tourists, lots of all of that, and they're and they're complaining about the. the they're, they're like, oh, I can get 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 beer for cheaper than you make your beer, and it's like, well, okay, I'm sure there's always people who want to sell beer cheaper than us. That's fine. That's what they want to do. That's not what we want to do. But that's absolutely fine. But then you have a conversation with them about where, what the price is on the bar. And you're saying, well, okay, they're charging this, this, this for cask beer. Like, you know, maybe back in the day, it was like, you know, 
£3.80 for a pint of cask beer, and you say, well, okay, that tap of Peroni next door to that, what are you charging for that? £4.50, £5. And it's like, okay, so I'm producing small batch, artisan, best ingredients flowing in from anywhere around the world with a highly skilled team doing the best I can in order to support you, give you the best possible product, and you're saying it's worth 20% less than this mass-produced product being belted out by some mega brewery. Um, so there is a little thing here. I mean, so ultimately, you know, I think if cons we have to persuade consumers to be as passionate and value cask as, as we are as producers. Um, and actually, for me, the thing I wouldn't want to do, because I think if there is a tax break for cask, it will just land up feeding through to, through to the price um, of cask, and it'll actually drive the price of cask down, and we're actually devaluing cask further, saying that it's this product you only buy because it's cheap beer. And it's not about cheap beer, it's about great beer, it's about our heritage, and we've We've all got to do our job and tell the story as to why people should drink it and pay a fair price for it on the bar. Not a lot. We don't, we don't want to be greedy, but we need to pay a fair price for it on the bar. Absolutely. I agree with you there. I want to pick up on, uh, you mentioned sustainability in reaching net zero earlier. And I think this is going to be a huge conversation in brewing over the next uh, five, ten years. Uh, because, you know, every business is looking at ways to become more sustainable. But brewing, even though... Craft brewing is quite a small industry in relative terms to the UK. It uses an immense amount of electricity. We already discussed how much you're paying for that. Um, not just boiling stuff, but keeping stuff cold uh, and taking stuff from hot to cold. Um, but you know, using a lot of power, a lot of ingredients, uh, a lot of water. Uh, you know, and you put, you're pro I assume you're using locally drawn water. The, from the stream coming down the hill behind you out of the barn, um, that, that, that is our water supply, so we, um, we, just, we just tap into that. So um, when it's raining today, that's the, the water we're brewing with tomorrow. There you go. That's fantastic. But how, what have you got planned to try and increase the sustainability and reduce the carbon footprint here at Fine Ales? Well, I think, you know, and so first I'll go back and you said we've all got to do this over the next five to ten years. My view is we don't. We've got to do this in the next three to five years. We, we, we absolutely, as, 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 a, as a country, we, we just cannot afford, as, as a world, we can't afford to sit back and say, this is something we're going to do in the next five to ten. Because as soon as you say that, people think, right, well, I'll spend five years planning and then five years doing, and then it never actually happens. So I, I do think this is urgent. We need to engage with it. We need to engage with it now. Um, the details, to be honest, I mean, we could get very technical in engineering if you want to, but um, I'm not sure it's necessarily, we're sitting in a beautiful Glenfine, but you know, but yeah, so clearly we're looking at a, um, a much bigger solar paddle installation um, that's, um, that's on the cards for this year. Um, we're looking at sort of more heat recovery because you mentioned the brewing process, you both have to heat up and cool down. We already do, we already recover up, up like 80% of that energy, but there's the last, um, or 85% even of that energy we already recover, but the last Last 15% we're not recovering that at the moment so I'm looking at some engineering changes to do that um, doing all the things like you know your LED lights putting light sensors in it, there's just there's it's about the detail you have to dive into every aspect of your process and say how do I make that more efficient reduce the amount of energy that you're using and then make sure that all of that is coming from sustainable sources absolutely and do you are you able to tap into much wind uh, power well, um, so if, if 
if you're those of you that walk up to the um, Walker's Bar later, um, look up in the sky and you may you may see some golden eagles above your head. Um, so we've we've um, we spoke um, probably about 20 years ago about the possibility of putting some wind turbines on the hill. You, you wouldn't even see them from anywhere unless you were on a, a different hill around the place. But we've got golden eagles up here, and um, golden eagles and um, and wind turbines don't mix. Not not a happy mixture. So we've unfortunately for us, wind's wind's not an option. I did actually see a golden golden eagle flying around yesterday, so that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's wonderful yeah, to see absolutely. such a giant bird flying around. Yeah. Um, and that's fair enough. Uh, coming back to Finefest, how, how are you feeling today? How does it feel to have thousands of people back in your family home uh, celebrating the beer you make and, and, and in this lovely weather? Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I have to say, this Finefest, I think, I mean, a month or two ago, my anxiety levels were just through the roof. And I think it's just, you know, we've all spent so, so, so long sort of all having to be quite socially distanced and, you know, I don't know about other people, but I've perhaps been leading a little bit of a quieter life, you know, you're sort of spending more time at home with family, which is lovely. Um, and, you know, when, when we go out, we tend to go out for a nice meal and we go for an early drink, but I've not been out with lots and lots of people. So suddenly the idea of like 3,000 people coming and having to organise it all is absolutely blowing my head. Um, and it's also, it's been, a, it's been a heck of a challenge because the industry, the events industry, has, you know, you can imagine the last couple of years they've had. So, so many of the people that we've always relied on, you know, they're now, maybe they're... Um, yeah, well, lots of like the tech tech crew are now working on film sets, and it's like, well, they're not going to give up a film set gig in order to come and play in the field for a weekend. It's like, you know, they've got good, steady, steady jobs, pretty much nine to five if you're on a film set. Um, and, you know, that's, well, relatively speaking, it isn't actually, but I mean, it's something like that. Um, and like food traders, food traders, so many of them have just packed up in the last, last thing, and they've got other jobs and um, doing other stuff. So it's been, it's been a hard one to put together. So, yeah, I have to say, coming, coming into like, um, well, first Thursday evening and then yesterday, I was slightly on the broken side <laughs> trying, trying to get everything done. But I tell you what, but then just seeing how, you know, by, by about late, late afternoon yesterday, I think I finally had everything settled down. And then just start to see how much people just enjoying it, enjoying the sunshine, enjoying the beers, and it's all working. And it's just, it is, it is the best buzz. I tell you, I'm glad you all enjoy it. But actually, when it's all working, my crew, me and the crew, and everyone that's involved, I mean, there's... there's point um, and they're all having the best time as well because you know we've worked like hell and then we just see everyone enjoying it and it's the biggest high so yeah fantastic, fantastic. any have you managed to have a few beers yourself I have had a, um, a fairly small number of beers, if I would be honest, so far. Um, any favourites stand out for any, you? Any favourites stand out for me? I've, I've been, um, gosh, people have pressed glasses of all sorts of different things into my hand. Um, what is, what? Sorry. It's all right, there are several. <laughs> brain brain oh, is no, gone there. I, people keep giving me, you've got to try this. And I try a bit, oh, that's fantastic. But I, what it was, I couldn't even begin to tell you now. <laughs> so, sorry. That's Total a, brainstorm. No, that's fine. I particularly enjoyed the, uh, the two collabs. Uh, there's the queer brewing one, Glen Cowbell, with yeah. uh, All English Hopped. Yeah. And uh, the uh, New Barns one, Earl, the Lagered Jarl. Yes. Um, so, I, I've enjoyed both of those uh, immensely. I've also enjoyed the absolutely brilliant selection of cider you've got this year as well so yeah. some lovely stuff um 
So what's what's the future look like for fine ales? We've you've come through the pandemic. Uh, we're dealing with the, the cost of living crisis. But what have you got planned? Uh, you know, what what can we expect to be drinking and and seeing from fine ales over the next year or two? Yep. So that's 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 interesting. You know. Um, and there's also, I think there's been an evolution in terms of what people want to drink, which is quite nice for us. Um, so I, th I think there's going to be less of the, um, you know, there's, there's, it feels like there's less pressure to do something new for the sake of it being something new. You know, there was always, you know, going back to 2019, pubs would phone up, what have you got that's new this week? And if you've got something new, they'll buy it. And if they haven't, they're like, oh, I'll wait till next week and get something new. And that's, you know, that is about those rotational taps where, you know, people want to go into a bar and see something new. Um, and so they're looking for that. We're seeing a lot less of that. We're seeing people wanting to drink beers that they really know are good and are going to work well. So we're very much developing that. We've been, um, we had in planning for 2020, we had this sort of series of uh, mixtape um, sort of cask IPAs. Um, so as well as Yarl and our Hurricane Jack and Avalanche, which you'd recognize as our core brands, we've, we started in 2017, 2018, doing an Everyone Loves series, which is different single hopped 3.8% beers. So that Everyone Loves became sort of a brand for us. Um, but we really wanted to spend some time dialing in cask IPAs and really seeing how do we actually actually really improve that. So um, so we're doing this mixtape series, which is all about different hops, but, but sort of taking that theme and just seeing how do we develop that theme and really find out and understand how do we make that better. So there's definitely going to be more development on actually on our cask programme. Um, the keg, keg program just goes brilliantly at the moment, um, so that, that's like, um, I'd love us to be doing a few more different lagers. Um, we have a brilliant um, German technical brewer um, joined us, um, having done her um, sort of proper, um, whatever they call the German Braumeister, um, at Rothaus. Um, so she's brilliant, brilliant lager brewer, and I really want to give her a bit more space to actually come up and do, launch a few different lagers. Um, we have, I, like, I like our fine lager we have at the moment, but I'd like to have more experimentation there. And then probably the next thing then is, is our Origins project, which is a, a very, very long-term project. Um, so, so the Origins um, is largely, it's about some sort of mixed firm beers, um, and we're pretty much moving all of that to spontaneous brews. Um, so it's, for those that don't know spontaneous, it means we're just brewing with a natural yeast from the air. Um, and they, those beers take about three years to produce. Um, so they, they go into, into, um, into um, used wine barrels, and um, that, when you see all the barrels sitting around the brewery, um, those are all sort of Origins beers, or most, almost all of them are spontaneous fermented beers which are just sort of going to sit there for two three years are the barrels in the courtyard full of beer yes oh fantastic yeah yeah, um, yeah not the ones that you're standing up leaning on but the no. ones that actually look like <laughs> yeah. look like they're in situ doing some work um but yeah so so that because that is such a long-term project you know stuff we're working on and brewing this year you're not going to see it in a glass until 2024 2025 so um, we're really growing that we also last year we we put in a fruit patch so we we're growing more of our own fruit um and that's going to be so so again we're doing a um a release of a pure spontaneous sort of gers style sort of beer but i mean we're not, we're not trying to um ape the the brilliant um belgian brewers who've been doing gerses 
for a long time. We're trying to do our take on it, our process, what works for us. Um, but we also do um, fruited versions of that. So we want to grow our own fruit so we can develop those um, as well as more forage products going into them as well. So there's lots to come there, but it's, it's a long-term, slow, steady thing. Um, and I don't think the market for them in the UK is huge. I don't think it's ever going to make us very much money, but I really enjoy those kind of beers. <laughs> it's um, something I love. And I've got Pavel, who is our um, lead brewer on that, who is an absolutely brilliant brewer and loves those kind of beers and is really getting them dialed in. I think they're going to be fantastic. We've actually got to talk about uh, the saleability of barrel-aged beers at three o'clock. And uh, uh, whoever, if anyone here is lucky enough to have a ticket to that, there are some uh, free samples pouring from a couple of the breweries, uh, which I'm very excited. There's uh, an exclusive from Red Willow as well. I've been really enjoying the Origin series, in particular the... Uh, beer you produced with Duration Brewing Beams, yeah. which won some awards deservedly. That was uh, sensational. Do try the origin stuff if you can in yeah. between your yarls. Yeah. Um, I would like to take this chance to open uh, the floor up for questions. If you've got a question, raise your hand, I'll come. And because we're recording this for the podcast, I'll hand you the mic so you can ask Jamie a question. Would anybody like to ask Jamie a question? Yes. Uh, I can't remember the exact timing, but it felt like Jarl came out in cans around about the same time as the pandemic hit. Was that just happenstance, or um, and how did it affect kind of sales, yeah. online sales? No, I, th I think I think we actually did the first batch of cans in 2019, but um, it's one of those ones. It's it's because we don't have big marketing budgets. Obviously, it takes a little bit of time for everyone to discover that some something's out there. Um, so yes, I mean I, th I think the pandemic grew all of our small pack sales hugely. And I think therefore, because a lot of people then were going to the web shop, they suddenly like, oh, it's there in cans. So yeah, so it's absolutely, it's really, really pushed, pushed the cans on a, on a leap. The cans are interesting. They're different to the bottles. Um, what we thought was we, we wanted to get, you know, the beer expresses, so the bottles and the cask are exactly the same recipe, exactly the same processes apart from the, the packaging. Um, but because beer in cask, what, what cask beer is brilliant at is expressing hop flavours in sort of subtle, delicate beers. Um, whereas once you carbonate it and you're serving it at fridge temperature, a lot of those flavours are, are sort of suppressed, attenuated. So what we wanted to do was to actually up the flavour profile um, actually in the base beer so that when you're drinking it from the can, it's coming in close to where the cask is. So actually to the consumer, we're trying to get the end point about the same. And that was a really interesting development. And I'm, I'm really happy with where, how they've landed, but I think it's taking people time just to discover that they're there and enjoy them. So, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for that. Any more questions from the audience? Yes. Very, looking very platy jubes in your Union Jack shirt there. Just with the, with the back to the pandemic again, the, you obviously saw quite a big increase in online sales. Have you sustained that increase or have you, have you seen a drop off? Oh, I mean, absolutely, it's dropped off, um, but it's still way higher than it was before. So, so pre-pandemic, you know, we'd probably be shipping. You know, the, our online store was, um, you know, we've, we've had an online store for at least, um, well, I've, I've been running the brewery now for whatever, 13, 14 years since Dad died, and, um, and the online store predated my involvement. But, you know, we used to have, like, a big push at Christmas, so people buy loads of beer, and then through the rest of the year, you know, there'd be a, a few every day but as now 
you know, we're still probably half a pallet a day goes out out to the online store, so it's an important part of our mix, but it's it's nothing like it was in the pandemic, obviously. Any more questions? We've got time for a couple more. Yes? Um, you said when you go to America, you try a bunch of Citra uh, samples. How does that work? What do you do? How do you taste them? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one, and... Um, and to be honest, I always, if, if I go um, to do it, which I've done a couple of times, because as well as actually selecting the hops, um, you've actually, um, it is also about building the relationships with the growers and with our importer and making sure that that whole thing's working. So I'm, I'm very good at that part. But actually, when it comes to rubbing the hops, you really need someone that's actually working with them every day. Because what's really interesting about hops, I mean, you know, what's one of the... I used to do some sort of, you know, I think back in sort of then 12 years ago, sort of wine versus beer dinners were a thing. And, you know, you'd put us up against the sommelier, you'd have this sort of great selection of wines, and we'd say, can you produce beers to match that? And, you know, we'd always surprise people, and people always nod politely, but um, you're never quite sure. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, but, but, but wine, you know, I think when you're tasting grapes and stuff, you can actually, you're getting much more of a sense of where it's going to be. When you actually rub hops, they smell fantastic. But you can take a parcel of hops that actually smells great um, and it can make really bland and indifferent beer. And sometimes you can rub hops that like have got a really quite a cheap, like an onion in it. And you know, you don't want onion in your beer. But in the brewing process, you're going to lose all of that onion flavour. You have to kind of be able to sort it in your head and say, okay, that component isn't going to come through. So I don't want too much of it because we're always worried if you get too much of it, maybe it will come through in your beer and you absolutely don't want it. As brewers, we're actually handling the product every day. Actually, get to smell it and feel it, and so you need that inbuilt memory of where it is. What do we consider to be the best version of that? You know, there's there's, there's another hop um, that we use in Hurricane Jack and Vital Spark Amarillo, um, and so mostly hops have a. The, the, all hops are harvested within. It's meant to be a five-week window, but um, I think a lot of the farms is actually seven weeks. I think they sneak a week on the beginning and sneak a week on the end. Um, and you know, and there are some hops which are sort of um, early and have to be picked in the first two weeks of that five-week window. You've got some hops which are middle, um, and citra is sort of middle to late. So, so citra is classically harvested in sort of weeks three and four of that sort of five-five-week window. But Amarillo, interestingly, um, it's, it's owned by one guy, um, Gamash Ranches, um, and he harvests right the way through. And what's interesting there is, depending on when people first bought Amarillo, because the flavour evolves during the course of the harvest and so some people say ah that is classic amarillo and they're getting week five product and some people are like no no that's classic amarillo and that's week one half so you know even one hop just hop from the same farm harvested five weeks apart will really be quite different so there's there's an awful lot goes into it and it is by working with the hops every day that you actually get that sense of what you're trying to achieve with your beer so yeah i'm, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate if you really want to dial your beers in you can't just go to the hop merchant and buy it because if you just do that you might get week one you might get week five you might get it from xyz um producer and you know it's like terroir in in wines you know hops grown on one side of the valley will have a different flavor to hops grown on the other side of the valley you know you you need to you need to understand this is an agricultural product you've got to choose what you want to, to brew with does that sort of answer the question? I that was a great question I, and a great answer. Thank I, you. I think I rambled. I thought it was great. Um, we've got time for one more question, if anyone has one. But don't worry if you, if you haven't. I think that's a lovely place to wrap it up then. Thank you so much uh, for coming to listen to this chat. And could you please give Jamie a wonderful round of applause, not just for this chat, but for this festival. <laughs>
thanks for listening to that, folks. I hope those audio dips didn't cause you too much of a headache and you managed to get as much out of that conversation as I did. Just to remind you, we will be back in the Glen doing these talks all over again in 2023. A whole new set of subjects, a whole new set of brewers to chat to about what's happening in beer right now. Tickets are available now from finefest.com. Don't miss out and don't be put off by the potential distance you have to travel to get there. It is worth every mile driven. It really is a special festival that I hope to see you at. Right, that's it from me this week. Fingers crossed I'll be back next week with the first of the panel discussions from Finefest. Until then, I've been Matthew Curtis and you've been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. Bye bye for now. (laughs) 